How are you, my friend? Good, 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 good. Hanging in there, you know? You look like something straight out of a movie right now. <laughs> where are you at right now? Where are you? Where are you, uh, are you? I'm in Orlando right now. Oh, okay. I live in uh, Naples. Oh, man. I know all about Naples because I had a house uh, forever in Fort Myers Beach. How long ago was it? I've done some, uh, some jobs there in Fort Myers Beach. Oh, that was in, uh, well, uh, the government took it in 1990. Oh, my gosh. You, so so you I had it from, uh, I don't know, from the late 70s. That's it. You, so you've seen it for you. I mean, it's totally different. Like Naples was probably was nothing back then. You know, how, how big was Fort Myers Beach during that during that time? Because I know it, it was, wasn't it was really nothing. that big. I think there was just like one big apart, apartment hotel like I don't even think it was a hotel. So a lot of old houses on the beach, I ended up buying right on the corner on uh, Stero Boulevard. And I yep. bought the one right in front of me on the ocean. So I had that whole huge lot. The, 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 know, ma the man who had it all and has it all. That's, that's incredible. You know, now it's a lot different. It's a lot better before, uh, you know, when you, when you ill gains, you know, my, my mother used to say, uh, a money ill gain never lasts. And boy, were they so right. You know, it, it slips through and, their, uh, it slips through their fingers. Because, because just to live with that, it was just, uh, not a good thing. You know? No, it's, I mean, oh. Here, you know, hearing your story is, is absolutely incredible. You know, I think that, so what the, the Eagle is podcast is, I focus on that who you are is so much more important than, than what you do, but your gifts, you know, I feel like your gifts and your outlook on life puts you into those situations because of your excellence. Like you talk about, you know, not lying. It's like who you are when you're a person of, you know, high character and you're a person of excellence everybody's looking to have you a part of their team and you just got, you just got picked up by a, you know, a team that wasn't uh, necessarily doing the best things, but that's what happens when you're, when, when you're a person of excellence, it's like you attract all kinds of, all kinds of people. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I write about it in uh, <clears throat> I think in a, in a recent blog I wrote, I said, when they recruited me really to handle all operations, I stay now. I never done drugs, never, you know, never drank alcohol, nothing. My godfather, founder of that group that became the Medellin Cartel, his thing was like, first thing he asked me, what are the three most important characteristics that you look for in a man that you want to be, do business with? And I said, you know, integrity, truth, and decency. I said, that's what my father taught me since I was a little kid. And he's like, well, your father was a very wise man. Don't ever forget that and do not ever deal with anyone that doesn't have those same characteristics. And uh, it really was the wisest thing I ever heard in my life. And to the point that that's what made me lay down the floor of Panamanian jail at 23. Literally, I just turned 23. I turned 23 February 29th, and this was the first week in April. You know, being beat to death because I just would not break my word. It's all that I control in my life. It's insane so, because most most twenty three year olds are, you know, still trying to figure out. You know, they say that they're trying to figure out their life, and you know, you know, a lot of them still living at home, which is hey, that's that's okay. But at but at twenty three years old, you're laying in a in a prison cell getting beat, but you're still sticking to the morals that you that you live by. Yeah, my father taught me. You know, my father was a very rich man, came from Cuba. My father grew up very poor. He dropped out of sixth grade. But he was such a ferocious reader that he was the, was the wisest man I ever met in my life. He went to work at a little cafeteria in Havana, ended up serving this guy that was the son of the richest man in Havana. And the uh, guy's father, who had in 1890 built a house in Havana for $2 million. So imagine how much money he, he printed the, the money for the government. Very, very rich person. He kept bugging his son, hey, you got to do something besides get up for breakfast. Go to that cafeteria lunch. So he asked my father, you know, what uh, what could my father, if there was any business my father thought that would be good. And, and I mean, all my father was was his waiter for six years, since he was 16. And my father said, yeah, I think that we ought to start a uh, lumber company and a furniture company. And they did. And my father became a multimillionaire. And then just left it all, came to, to the U.S. to clean toilets at J.C. Uh, uh, Penney's. So imagine my dad and a group of guys in Cuba, in when Fidel took over in '59, it was, the Cuban peso was equivalent to a dollar twenty-five U.S. 
So it was that much stronger than the U.S. currency. And uh, my father and a group of men, my father gave this guy a million pesos back in 59 so that whenever he came to America, he would get $200,000 cash. And, uh, and so did a group of friends. Well, the guy was a scam artist. He took off and when they got here, none of them had anything. But my dad was always saying to me, uh, he's like, son, in life, I mean, like, I mean, like a, like a broken record, my brother. Son, in life, you got no control whether you're rich or poor. And I'm like, no kidding. I mean, we lived in one square block in Cuba, and here we are, 11 of us sleeping in the floor of an apartment in Miami. He said, you got no control whether you're sick or healthy. No control whether, you, whether you're even dead or alive. He said, son, don't forget this. The only thing in life you got absolute control is your word. Only you can break it. Nobody can break it for you. And the day you break up your word, just know to yourself that there's nothing in this world left that defines you or that you control. But I mean, like literally, <laughs> like a broken record. I mean, my brother and I like, here it comes again. Here it comes. I, mean, I was 10 and my brother was 9. But those words just resonated when I was in the floor of Panaman Joe. And I knew that I would die. I had no, I had no doubt that I would die in that jail, but I didn't give a damn. I didn't care because I would die a man of honor. I'd rather die a man of honor than live disgraced, you know, and, may, and mainly because not even for me, because I've always been one that not politically correct, couldn't care less what anybody thought, because I always thought that if it was going to be, it was going to be up to me, you know, I, I, I had a vision one of the times that that uh, they beat us because they would beat us till we pass out and then come and beat us again. And uh, one of those times, I had this vision that my son, who when I went to prison was only six months old, but he was grown now and he, I was shaving and he came over and he was crying. I'm like, why are you crying, son? And he says, because they said my father is not a man. And I'm telling you, that, that moment, that vision, I said, you know what? I don't care if they kill me. I don't give a damn. Because after a while, the truth of the matter is that the pain doesn't hurt anymore. Well, what works on you in those, in those foreign prisons with the tortures is your mind. Because what I was afraid of, and the only thing I've ever been afraid in my life, was to lose my mind. To be a vegetable to my parents. Sitting in a wheelchair or in a mental institution. And I'm like, no, you know what? Shit. I mean, if I die, I die. Does it make any difference? So, you know, bring it on. And, uh, and that's how I survived those 28 days. No food, no water. Uh, no toilet, nothing. It was just a filthy-ass dungeon. And uh, once a day, they would turn on this picket of water in the ceiling, and through this rusted metal pipe, it would drip water out. So we would always try to lay where the water was going to come down in case when they opened the water, we were passed out, you know? So we're always trying to, like, lay right there. Like, okay, because we're handcuffed to our feet and our back. So we're just, okay, we're going to lay... When they come in to beat us, we want to make sure that we lay by the underneath the water spigot, you know, the water pipe, and uh, and that's what happens. So, as I look at the world today, man, and I see that you know, no, nobody gives a damn about the word. Now we have people calling it alternative truth. I mean, what the hell is that? It you know, it's truth or not? It's uh, it's sad, very very sad. You know what I what I love about these these conversations because I don't you know I don't do a, the this the podcast and um, you know helping people f- for money it's, it's what I love to do what I love most is when I get into situations like this is like that whole that whole story is you know I look at it like a a mind map you know when you draw when you draw one thing and then you can go all kinds of different different right. directions there, there's so there's so much um, in that. When you you're talking about like losing your mind, because I think that your mind is one of the most powerful things. I think that your mind is also wicked too. Oh. For what point did you start to feel it kind of kind of slipping? Like how many how many days in did you kind of feel yourself starting to? It's like getting kind of weird. No, the truth of, the truth of the matter was it was funny. Not at all. What, the reason it really concerned me was because the guy across from me, he had been there in that dungeon for six months. And he would just call with a little bit of marijuana. And, uh, and he would spend all day long licking the bar, licking the bar and making noises. And uh, one of the guards, I don't know if it was true or not, one of the guards told him, listen, he lost his mind here. And I'm like, it ain't going to be me, buddy. 
you know, I, I'm going to force you guys to kill me before that happens. Really, when I thought after 28 days, you know, with very, very little water, no food, food after a while, you just don't, don't really care. I mean, I was, I could use the lack of food for 28 days back then. I was a little heavy. But uh, that's when I just uh, told one of the guards, I said, uh, tell Noriega he needs to kill me. Because if he doesn't kill me, when I get out, he knows I got the power to find him. And I, will, and I will kidnap his wife and kids, and I will rape his wife in front of him. Now, I never in my life would ever done anything like that, but I knew that that's something that Resonate. really does not settle well with Hispanics. Sure enough, that he came over the, the next day. And when he came over, it was funny because he I thought he'd come shoot us or something. Actually, when I saw him coming, I was like so relieved. He was like, okay, my mission is over with. This is done. He's going to come in here because, I mean, we knew his stories. You know, my godfather... Uh, one of his nephews went to uh, Peru to buy drugs, and after spending a lot of money to find the body, they sent it in a box cut up in four pieces. So I knew what those foreign countries were like. And uh, <clears throat> so when he came laughing, I was like, damn, this guy is diabolical, but really was really friendly. He's like, why are you threatening me? I didn't tell on you. It was your pilots. And uh, he says, hey, by the way, you paid the wrong guy. See, we have bribed the attorney general. So I'm like, okay, how much? To get out. He says, you pay him two fifty, you pay me two fifty. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen in nineteen seventy nine. Well, you know, a million and a half. That's now a we had we had in different parts of the country, different we had always had a million dollars ready to go and a code where we would call this one person. We had six, seven different person, where we could call this one person and say certain code and they would know how much money to bring to where the call was coming from. No questions asked. So I gave, I, I gave him the number, the code. He called it, and sure enough, the next day, the 250000 was there. They came in and they washed us down with a fire hose, which <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, brother. That hurts more than the tortures. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's like someone just shooting you with a machine gun of needles. So, but uh, we went in there. And then they took us to the airport. We were supposed to go to Bolivia, I mean, to uh, Costa Rica, because I had paid for the campaign of the Costa Rican president. So they had just gotten elected. We had paid a million dollars to get him elected. So we knew we could do whatever we wanted there. And, uh, but he took us to the airport. He showed us the tickets to Costa Rica, but he called Interpol. And Interpol intercepted us at the airport and kidnapped us to Miami. So you, pay, you paid these guys off you know, almost a million and a half dollars back then. They let you out, but then they still ratted you out when you're about to get on the plane. And the funny thing was, <laughs> I ran into him in, in Miami when he was in jail in Miami. The only smart thing he ever did was that he turned himself in in his military uniform. So he was treated as a prisoner of war. And uh, so he was in this little, like a cage, but he had like a nice bed and he had a exercise machine. He had a bike, uh, exercise bike, bike, but it was bars. To the yard where we would go out, you know, the rest of the inmates would go out. And I walked up to him and I'm like, General, you don't look that tough in them orange outfit like, I, like me. He never, he would never, I said, don't you remember me? Of course he didn't remember me, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't even look at me in the eyes. It's amazing what happens when you, when people get off of that level of, of power, because I think a lot of people's power doesn't come from eternally, in, internally it comes from a a position to where when they're in that position, you know, they're, they're somebody special, but when you take that away, they're just like everybody else. Yeah. Like I, like I said, uh, I did a, a, a YouTube, uh, that I call it the difference between moral authority and positional authority, right? Like Pablo Escobar, I tell people, Pablo Escobar never had any moral authority. He had positional authority. So what's the difference? Well, positional authority is the authority you have over someone that either fears you or needs you. So like if you have a company and, and your employees desperately need that job and you treat them like garbage, you know, you got positional authority over them, but you have no more authority. And then more authority is what you earn, right? Throughout years of being a person of integrity and it's the authority that would make people die for you. So Pablo Escobar had no more authority, had positional authority. Positional authority ends when people don't need you anymore or don't fear you anymore. That's right? a scary, like that's a scary place. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's very, very difficult to have uh, people, you know, 
sometimes people just, it goes to the head, goes to the head. So instead of, uh, you know, earning people's respect and, uh, and people knowing that, hey, he's always going to have my back, you know? And perhaps that's why me and my godfather and maybe two or three others are left from thousands of us. One of my favorite books is the law, the laws of human nature. It just talks about, you know, us as us as human beings. And, you know, you talk about positional authority. That's, that's the same thing that um, Stalin, Stalin had and read stories about what he would do to his generals. He'd get them drunk and make them dance together um, and just treat them like, just treat them like garbage. And he would, you know, if he messed up one time, he'd kill him. So these people are all, you know, all fearing him. But when he had a stroke, if one of his generals, would have stepped in and like got him some help. He would have, you know, he would have been able to, to stay alive. But once he was in a position of weakness and didn't have that positional authority, they didn't need him anymore. And they, they weren't scared and they, they let him die. And I think that's where a lot of people, when you look, because you look at all the, you know, you're in a, a unique position that most, I mean, that's, that's, I've never even heard of because you can look back now and see the progression of all of the different drug lords and, and the rises of power that have come up. You were in it. You didn't stay in it because you've got like, you know, Pablo Escobar, and then you've got all the other drug lords uh, that have been in power, but they haven't been in power that long because there's always a, you know, somebody else that wants that position. Yeah. Cause they all they ever had was positional authority, right? As a matter of fact, if you look at who brought them down, all the drug lords, really in reality, it's their own people. I mean, the United States wants to take credit for killing Pablo Escobar, but I'm going to tell you something. That's a, it's a bunch of crap, you know. Number one, is a, his son is right, uh, partially right. Uh, I believe he committed suicide because he would always tell me that he was never going to be brought walking to the United States. He was going to be brought laying down. And uh, when he saw that it was coming to the end, uh, he shot himself. And uh, so everybody wants to take credit for killing Pablo Escobar, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people shot at him afterwards, but he, he committed suicide. Look, he knew he could not be on a phone more than two and a half minutes, and he had 30 cell phones. So whenever he wanted to talk to his family, he'd get on, a, on those taxis in that neighborhood that no one in the world would ever do him any harm. He was God there. And uh, two and a half minutes, hang up two and a half minutes. And then that, but what happened, what he saw was that his family was coming to the end, right? Because the people that were really persecuted Pablo and really, really brought him down, were the same Medellin cartel, you know? It was the same guys that finally had it fed up with him, fed up that, with his way of being. With, when he killed those two brothers in that movie, which really in reality didn't happen like Narcos has it, I know exactly how it happened from someone that was there. He knew that they were gonna get her to the family. I mean, they sent the, he sent the family to Germany. They sent him back. They didn't even let him get off the airplane. Uh, he tried to work out a deal with the U.S. government. I know that person because I was involved in that and that was rejected. Stupid. That was a big mistake on the Clinton administration because they could have stopped. They, they were not going to eliminate drug trafficking forever, but they could have stopped it for three, four years. He was making a deal with them where he would turn in every lab in air, and every airstrip in Colombia and, and hundreds of millions of dollars. Soon enough, somebody else was going to come along and then we're going to regroup and all that. But, but you don't build airstrips and you don't build labs and all that overnight, you know? No, years. So, maybe not years, but a year, six months, seven months. But even beyond, just the implication of someone telling on all, all this organization uh, would have made a lot of people run for cover. Or what was he? Was he just wanting amnesty or for, what was he wanting? No, no, no. All he wanted was his family to be allowed to come to the United States with five million bucks. That's it. Nothing for him. That seems like an and, easy, that, uh, that seems like a no-brainer trade. Yeah, and some punk in the uh, Clinton administration said we don't deal with the enemy. I'm like, really? You got to be shitting me, man. You know, and that's and that's really what this oh. my whole my whole thing is about is is egoless. Is like we let our egos get in the way of some of the best sure. things in our life. Sure, is is the common denominator between all the drug lords that have died. One common denominator: ego, selfishness, and greed which are all combined. And if you look at like, like this, this thing that this production that I just did that's coming out at the beginning of the year, they asked me a question no one ever asked me, and it's true. And, uh, and I just answered it off the top of my head. They asked me like, why was it that Pablo Escobar, El Chapo, these two guys that worked for me, Salma Buda, for example, why was it that they 
had as much money as you, as many airplanes as you did, probably more, as many fake passports as you did, probably more. Why couldn't they just leave for a foreign country with no extradition, and yet they stayed, and yet it was so easy for you to quit? And I, and I said, real simple, because for me, I never considered myself a drug dealer. I was a businessman. And in 1976, 77, 78, when, when I was heavily involved, I said, our clients were the high society of America. I mean, we were not even on the DA radar. If you see the interview that I posted with the DA agent that was undercover in my I case. I did, yeah. He was tell you that. I mean, you, you, there's a part, I don't know if I posted a part where he said, look, we didn't even know much about cocaine until. Yeah, they, he said he didn't even know it existed. Yeah, until they found out about me. How did they find out about me? Through my attorney who betrayed me. Because prior to that, they never, well, prior no ever, the, U the United States DA does not have one single compromising picture of me. They don't have one single uh, wiretap of me. They don't have anything. I've been, I've, I went to jail on a, somebody said something. That's it, on a conspiracy charge. Didn't even matter if it happened or not. So it was, uh, it was really sad. I said, so when I saw that the business that I thought was harmless, that was for the rich and famous, the Hollywood celebrity, when I saw that now it had changed when I came out of prison, now Pablo and his group, because Pablo didn't even exist when I started. Pablo and his group now have power. They're killing people. Uh, there's violence all over the place. Now you got to carry a gun. My father said, listen, if you ever need to carry a gun, to deal with someone, don't. And uh, <clears throat> and then on top of that, I saw that I was hurting kids. I I, I walked, and literally I walked. I was making a million dollars for doing nothing, nothing. All I would do, I'd receive a phone call every month, and I would say, send the airplane or don't send it. That's it. I hadn't seen cocaine in years. That's number one. Number two, I was still in charge of the high uh, of the high payoffs. So we're spending five hundred to a million dollars a month in bribery. And that's all I did. And to walk away with from that, see, like I tell people, walk away from the money. Yeah, it wasn't easy. You don't walk away from a million dollars in, in 84, two, three million dollars today. And, uh, you know, and all that you have, the hard part was, which is tied to ego, is the power. Well, giving up that power, man, that's, power is the most heinous of all drugs. That's why you see all these real, real rich people that live a fantastic life, decide to spend all godly, ungodly amounts of money to become a politician or run for president because they feel it's the ultimate, the ultimate power ego. And uh, they say, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing it to become West Server country. bullshit. I think that, I don't know, man. I don't know when was the last president that truly, truly, really felt that he wanted to run you know, to make things better. I, I just see, yeah, no, you're, I mean, you're, you're right. And I'm glad, you know, I look back cause I know, and I know you're a Christian too. And I look back after, uh, you know, uh, Noah's time, you know, all the wickedness in the, in the world when the flood came and instead of living 800 years now, you know, God said, Hey, you're only going to live 120 years at max because you look at the, the, the power, it's, it, it's so true. It corrupt, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine these some of these people that you know these these older you know I mean, what Na like Nancy Pelosi's like 90, 90 years old and you know and wants to be the speaker. If I'm ninety years old, I'm like, man, I want to just be relaxing on the beach somewhere. But you're, it's Michael it's Bloomberg, true. Michael Bloomberg. I mean, think about Trump. His plane is probably better than Air Force One. His apartment looked better than the White House. He had a good-looking wife. You know, uh, he everybody loved him. Everybody loved him. Now have the world hates him. You know, he was funny. He was this and that. Why? Why do that? And uh, and I know because I see them close by. You know, I, I I've been with presidents all over the world, and I and I see what power and money how it corrupts. And uh, and and you might say, okay, yeah, well, there's some people that go there, and they go there because with the intention to do good, but then the system breaks them. So I think that the way we fix that is. We have term limits, one time, period. And uh, I wouldn't even let no one run for president that has not run a successful company. I mean, this is the biggest country in the world. And but just, just uh, yeah, with different with different experience versus just you know 
you know, selling out. I look at, and I don't know how you feel about it, but you've, you've been around the, you know, the people in power and you look at like how many wars that we've been in that we're not supposed to be in. I think it was Puerto Rico. Maybe it's Puerto Rico. They just found, not just found, but from the last hurricane, you know, everybody was, they, they didn't have the amount of supplies that they need and everything. And then somebody found this huge storehouse of all these supplies that we sent over that those people needed like everything that we sent over there wasn't even used because somebody wanted to hoard it for the power it's very very sad i mean the worst part about what we're at right now is that we have lost stability see and i could care less what anybody thinks about me but the way i behave is the way my son is going to learn how to behave the way i behave as a man and as a husband is how my daughters, the type of men they'll think is the norm as their husband. It's very, very, you know, like I always say, St. Francis said, listen, we are the only Bible that someone might ever see. And that is so true. You know, preach the gospel, preach it without ceasing day and night. And if necessary, absolutely necessary, use words. And that's the thing. That's why we see that church dying. I mean, look, listen, let's wake up, man. I'm a Christian. I have a PhD in New Testament. I love Jesus. I love Jesus with a passion. I'll die for Jesus. The same way I was an atheist. But our youth, we might want to live in Lily Land, but our youth want nothing to do with the church. I mean, they're becoming no, none, none, you know, that new religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. None. I'm spiritual, but I belong to nothing. It's growing twice as fast as people are leaving the church. Like I tell my my brothers and sisters, I'm Catholic. I was, you know, I call myself an evangelical Catholic because I was saved. I met Jesus in the evangelical church. I love the evangelical church. I still listen to Andy Stanley every Sunday religiously. Uh, but, you know, I just think that the sacrament is very important to me. I just think that when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he did not say it's a symbol, you know. And if I get to heaven and he said it was a symbol, I lost nothing. Uh, if I get to heaven and, and, and people think it's a symbol, he says, why would you think that? I was very clear. And, ha- and because I happen to know Greek, he says it was called the emphatic language, Greek, which is like, damn it, this is my body. Damn it, this is my blood. <laughs> you know? So anyway, none of that. But I tell my, brother, my Catholic brothers today, why do you think that nobody, look at your churches. You know, Billy Graham went to England years ago, and Prince Charles asked him, what? How to, how to fix the problem that we're having with the youth. And he said, if you don't get you, the youth into the churches, in 20 years, your churches are going to be empty. Well, look at them. Go to Europe. There's nothing but tourists and old people dying. 80% of our church population, according to the Pew, 80% is people over 50 years old, 55 years old. You know, what happens in 20 years? So this youth doesn't want to go. Our church is going to be empty. Like I told my, my Catholic brothers, they're like pro-life. I said, you're not pro-life. You know, you're probably on board. Because if you're pro-life, you have to be pro-all-life. Don't tell me that you're pro-life and you agree in the death sentence. You know, that, that guy, I don't care if he's a rapist, murderer, whatever, was created by the same God that created you and I. And when God created him, he looked at him and said, it is good. Now, life, sin, makes us ugly. And he's paying for, uh, and you know, I think, first of all, I think the worst punishment in, on earth is life in prison. You give me a show of life in prison execution. Take me out, you know? And I only spent 10 years. Why are we not pro that life? Why are we not fighting for those children? I've been to the border. Not what people told me. And listen, I've been a Republican all my life. I've been to the border. I've seen those children. I've seen those mothers separated that will never see their children again because they're, in, they're, they're what we call Indians, indig- indigenous people. They have no means to call and find out or anything. They don't have a telephone where they're from or no, nothing like that. It's really, really sad. It's really, really sad. I mean, look, I'm, I'm anti-abortion, but I'm going to tell you this, and, and this is, I'm transparent, man. I tell everyone, if my daughter comes to me and tells me that she was raped by some animal and she wants to get an abortion, God forgive me? Between God, you know, judge me when I get to heaven. There's a lot worse than I've done, but I'm going to take her to get an abortion. And I'm sorry if it offends my, brother, my Catholic brothers and sisters, but it is the truth. If they tell me that they can only save one, my child or my wife, come on, man. Tell me, show me, show me people that said, save the child and kill the wife. You know? Anyway, those are hard subjects. But what I'm saying with that is that now it becomes uh, Jake, so contentious that that instead of attracting people to the church, right? We chase them away. 
And that's what I tell people, listen, I don't preach. I don't care if you are Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Jewish, if you worship plants or animals, if you worship yourself, I can give it. Yeah, that's between you and whoever you believe. I don't care if you're straight, gay, trisexual, quintuple. All I care about doing is to show you the love of a Jewish carpenter whose love was so, is so immense that transformed the most hardened of our hearts. Because when I was an atheist, my brother, I was an atheist. I didn't believe in anything. In prison, if I see you with a Bible, I spit on it and throw it in the garbage and tell you, fight for it. I'm like, why would I want to go to heaven? You say you're going to heaven, going to hell? Why would I want to go to heaven? It must not be that good. You're scared to go there. I'm not scared. I'm not scared to die right now and go to hell wherever I go. I say, if I go to hell, that's where all my friends are. That's how I lived. And, uh, and I couldn't care less about nothing. One thing about me, I've been transparent all my life. You know, and like I said, we got to fight for all life. Listen, I'm sure there's some, and, and again, I'm talking generality, but I don't believe there's a single woman out there that gets pregnant to get an abortion. I just don't believe that. I don't believe anybody's pro-abortion because I've known a lot of them. Not a lot, but I know a few that have gotten and it's messed them up big time. But why are we not doing something? And there are organizations that are doing, but why are we not helping those organizations to do something to help that woman not to have to make the horrific choice? Because at the end of the day, Here's the deal. I know a doctor, a good friend of mine, very pro, pro-life, very, will not perform no abortion, but one of his closest friends has. And, uh, and he said, you know how many Latin American women come to me because, or come to his friend because abortion is illegal in their country to get an abortion here? I said, do you think that the rich person that wants to get an abortion is not going to get one? It's going to. So, you know, we just need to fight for Jesus, man. We just need to show the love of Jesus. Everyone was attracted to Jesus, whores, tax collectors, good people, bad people. Not because anyone thought it was God. If they did, they would not have run after three years. Why did they say that, that Jesus was God later on? Because they said that God is love because they saw Jesus was love. And his love transformed everybody's heart. And he wasn't judgmental. He would not compromise. And he would tell you, sin no more. But he loved all people, man. And he was a magnet to humanity. That magnet in 12, in, in three years, 12 nobodies, most of them stupid, no education, no internet, no social media, transformed Western civilization forever. Think about that. Jesus went around doing, right? He went around, he said his name was famous because of what he did. You know, if you needed your, if you needed sight, he would heal your eyes. Uh, you know, if, if you're, I uh, said, you know, stretch out your withered hand, he went around meeting people's needs and solving their problems before ever preaching at them. And it's so it's, you know, but it, it's, it's crazy that human beings, we can read about him and we can, you know, say, Hey, we are, we are Christians, but I don't think that they, you know, they really are Christians. They believe in, you know, they, they do believe in Jesus, but if you're a Christian, that means you act like, like he would act. And I don't see very many people doing that because we have the ability to solve the world's problems. Like at the, at the border, there is so much money held up. And even a lot of these Christian um, nonprofits, are they really to, to solve the world's problems? They do a little bit with it, but it's, it is a lot about the ego to where I love where you're, you know, you've got, you've got the moral authority of everything that you, that you've been through to where, you know, you can say to those people, hey, you are, this is where you need to be at. And I think somebody like you really can, you know, I'll say one man can change the world. And that's what I love about your demeanor um, and everything that you've been through. Yeah, you know, uh, very few people know, I did the uh, the commencement for Liberty right after 911. I was a speaker. And I never forget Jerry Falwell Sr. calling me in because you're probably too young, but after the 911 attack, he made a horrific statement about Muslims, that they were all terrorists, whatever, you know, like we do now. Like some pre uh, priest out there said that all, uh, all Democrats cannot be Catholic. Well, I know a lot of Democrats that are very pro-life and fighting within the, within the framework of their party, but they believe in a lot of other things that our party has lost. Anyway, long story, I remember him asking me and looking at me and saying, Dr. Valdez, do you think that I was wrong? And I looked at him and said, Dr. Fogwell, uh, in honesty, yes. You threw everybody under the same umbrella. And that's not right. Yeah, those those radical Muslims that attacked us, 
are animals, and I'm sure there's many like them. But the truth of the matter is that there's many that are very good people, honest people. I remember I had a friend of mine who was a Muslim, his name was Tony, my partner, and we were got in a truck, and all those service women were after him, really uh, light, light-skinned, African-American, good-looking kid. And I mean, they were begging him to have sex with him, right? He never did. And he said, you know, he said, George, I, and, and I, listen, I was having sex with, with a prison employee in the chapel because no one would look at me. No one make sure, because I was told no one be looking in the chapel. So, and, uh, and he would, and I would say to him, come on, Tony, don't be stupid. Who knows what your wife is doing out there? He said, it's insignificant. He says, my faith dictates that I am more than a three-second thrill. Well, it ended up that his wife was cheating on him with his best friend. And he found out about it. And I'm like, aren't you sorry for all those wasted opportunities? And he's like, no. And I still would do it again because my actions don't dictate her behavior. You know, I am who I am because of what I believe and what I stand for, not because of what she believes or what she stands for. When you're a good person and you're a decent human being and you're a person of integrity, it's not conditional upon the person you're transpiring with being the same. I knew for a fact that the people that I was keeping quiet, mo- not all, but most of them, would betray me one day. And a and, and year later, one of them, the guy that did not look at me and like, didn't that ever cross your mind? I said, oh, I've, I was convinced I was going to be betrayed. One of my closest friends betrayed me over $40 million, $20 million. Cheated on me with my first wife. I said, you know, Manuel, when I laid in that prison cell, my action was never be dictated upon what I was doing. I wasn't doing it to look good for them or, 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 or that I feared them or that they would do the same for me. I did it because that's what a man does. I did it for my kids. My kids will never walk down any street in the world and have to turn their backs because of their father. And that's all I cared about. And, and uh, such and confidence life, comes from that. It doesn't matter. It is. And, and look, I, for a long time, no one heard about me because I kept it that way. Because in reality, until recently, when I started saying, the richest guys in the drug business in Colombia, no one even knows about. You know, Pablo Escobar was by far not even among the four richest or five richest guys. He was the most brutal. He was the most violent and ruthless, but not wealthy, not wealth-wise. Because uh, the, the, the real smart guys, they don't advertise. No, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't want it out there. Can, will you tell me that just, you know, coming off, I feel like this is a good, but coming from, you know, we're talking about, you know, your friend who, you know, whatever they do doesn't dictate um, what he did. And that confidence comes from, you know, knowing that you, you know, that, hey, I, I don't lie. Having that confidence saved your, saved your life at a time when Pablo Escobar um, put a hit out on you. Can you tell me that story on here? So one of the things that I've done, which is, I just recently wrote this book, Narco Mindset Journal. I, I bought it on Amazon. I can't wait for it to get in. Because my son, my young son, at the age of 16, overdosed. Long story, but today he's very, very successful. Very, very committed Christian. Beautiful wife, beautiful little daughter, a millionaire, 29 years old. And uh, I, need to, I need to meet him. That's a God story. I love that. He was living with his mom. And, uh, and you know, in reality, he didn't have no, no controls. Came to live with me, his whole life changed. And he's the one that urged me to do it. He said, Dad, let's do this. Because everyone asked me, how was it that I became what I am and, and, and reached where I reached? And I'm like, really, just things that my father taught me. So we started writing that, that journal, right? How to transform people's mindset, personally, family, and business. Because it's all about mindset, right? I mean, I survived with that because of my mindset. You know, I, I went to prison, forfeited everything, came out, earned a PhD, and then built a multi-million dollar business. Why? Because of my mindset. Nothing else. I'm not, I haven't invented a damn thing. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. <clears throat> one of the things that I always did, which is one of the principles that I have in the journal is called win-win. I always, always, both of my companies, legal and illegally, I believe if, if, if one common denominator or one of the main denominator was because I always believed in a win-win. When I was bringing in a load, let's say we're bringing in 600 kilos today. Well, my godfather and I would was 300 belong to us. And then we would go to the other big drug dealers in Colombia, Pablo, you know, Gacha, uh, I got another, another guy named Frank, and we'll say, okay, I can give you guys 100 each. And the reason I did that was because then they, they would not ever 
be jealous of my success. They were happy that I succeeded because they made money with me. So <clears throat> basically, I would just charge him transportation, right? If it cost me like $5,000 uh, a kilo to bring it from Colombia to uh, the United States, then I would charge him $7,000, my cost and profit. And, and then later on, some of them did the same thing. But Pablo came up to me one day and said, I want to start selling insurance. <laughs> Insur like, insurance? Like, what, what are we, FedEx? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like you're in good hands with, uh, with Pablo Escobar. I could see him doing some commercials. Well, instead of paying me 7,000, they'll pay me 10,000. And if something happens to the load, I give him the cocaine back in Colombia. And I'm like, well, number one, we never lost the load. And number two, why would we do that? And he's like, it's a, there's no victims here. Because the, the worst that happens is that they lose some time, but they're getting their, their main investment back. He says, but every third load, I'm going to say that I got lost. And now I was really perplexed. <laughs> Why? He says, because I give him the cocaine back in Colombia, 3000 at that time a kilo, but yet I have it already in the United States. I have all the cocaine in the United States that I could sell for 15000 20000 whatever was going on at that time, and I didn't put up a dollar. I wouldn't even have to return the cocaine until I saw theirs first. He said, no one would be mad because they lost anything. And I looked at him and I'm like, well, I just can't participate in that. And he thought of me like I was crazy. I'm like, I can't. I said, the reason is, <clears throat> it's a lie. And I said, Pablo, you know, all my life, the only thing I have is my, my word. And uh, I said, now, I don't know those people. You can sell all the insurance you want. I couldn't care less. Not like I'm going to post an article in the Miami Herald. Hey, Pablo's selling fake insurance, you know? So fine, it went on, and I don't know how many times he did it. And then one day, this guy that worked for another one of those big drug dealers who Pablo killed because the guy, legend goes, I don't know for sure because I wasn't there, but legend goes that he was at a New Year's party, and he said, hey, Pablo's got all the fame, but I got all the money. And Pablo did not like it and killed him. So anyway, long story. I did a lot of this for this guy who was his right-hand guy in Miami, but was also an assassin. So I get a phone call one day. His name was Victor, and he's like, I need to meet with you. And I saw the urgency. And I went in, and I met with him at a mall in Dayland. And I said, what's up? He said, I got a contract on you. Said, you got a contract on me? Pablo said that you disrespected him by using an airstrip that belonged to them outside of Houston in Mexico and uh, without permission. And I'm like, well, first and foremost, I never know of any airstrip that we ever have used that belonged to him, number one. Number two, had I known that we we're gonna use an airstrip that belonged to him, I would have called you, I would have called him. So we called, we called Pablo and I'm like, you're making a big mistake because I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, number one, I never ever disrespect you or anybody. Number two, I did not use your airstrip. Number three, if somebody else did and said I authorized it and I like they're lying because you know one thing, I don't lie. And it was over with. You know, he said, sorry, and he hung up. He was a didn't speak too many words, but uh, that was it. And that was like a year and a half after the insurance incident. You gave, you know, you you gave and said, Hey, we're gonna be a win-win, you're making everybody happy. And it's so insane that ego will make you, will make people, you know, ego, pride, and power will make somebody kill somebody over nothing. It's like, you can look back and like, man, all the good stuff that uh, Jorge did for us, but then one little thing to where they feel disrespected and, they, and they wanted to kill you. Literally, human life meant absolutely nothing to them, guy. Nothing. And the worst part was that if he ordered a hit on you, he would kill every male of your family. And your brothers and any children, boy children that you had he would forgive the girls sad man it was really really horrific and uh you know when i saw that it just ate my stomach you know and i'm like i gotta walk away i can't do this anymore and I, honestly i thought i'd be killed within the first three months you know because we i thought we didn't have a very good uh, retirement program in the cartel so you know, the thing that they couldn't deal with is the unknown, right? Why is George walking away when he ain't doing crap 
He's making a ton of money for doing nothing. Why would he want to walk away from that? There's no investigation going on. He's not on anybody's radar. Nobody's been arrested. Why would he want to walk away, abandon all that? When they cannot identify that unknown, then the easiest way to do is just take out that equation, take you out of the equation. Because for them, they didn't care. They didn't care that, that you would say, okay, let me tell you about Paolo, let me tell you about this guy, this guy, that guy, because they knew that already, right? What they didn't care, what they care about was, and they're, they're, they're saying was, the dead cannot talk. And they wanted to make sure that whoever would not get in front of a jury and talk. So that's, that's the deal with that. But, you know, and, and, and I look back in my life, I never thought I'd live past 24. I knew when I got in that world, Jake, I knew. I would tell this to my, this is what really gets me today. All I do is to make a difference in the world, right? You know, I built a multi-million dollar company, sold it. I am financially secure for life. I drive a Rolls Royce. I live in a gorgeous home. I put all my children through college. They all have graduate degrees. Uh, every time a child got married, I bought them a house. So I'm set for life. I mean, I live an amazing life, but considered, com compared to a life I lived, I'm a pauper, right? You know, when I walked there, our company had jets, our company had yachts. We, I don't have that, but I don't need that. I've lived in multi-million dollar palaces. I've had million dollar cars. I had jets. I went out with the most beautiful women in the world. I've been married now to my wife for 25 years, and every day I love her That's more nice. and more. And, uh, you know, and, and the thing about it is that I tell people, if you're not content with what you got, you're not going to be content with anything. So what I do is to make a difference in someone's life because I believe, I tell this all the time when I speak, when the pages of history are written, do you care if history remembers your name? History doesn't remember anybody's name because they made a lot of money. It remembers those that have impacted other lives. Mother Teresa, people like that. With that said, I, I want to, what I'm doing now is, I mean, it's costing me money. Our mission is, all my speaking fees, all my book royalties, they go to buy books to send to prison. So far this year, we sent almost 30,000. That's incredible. So that men and women and children that have no hope can find hope, can find redemption. So all this that I'm doing with my social media and all that, it costs me money. I don't make money off of it. And it's so difficult to get people to join on and to say, hey, I'm going to subscribe to your channel. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to spread your word because you know what? You're making it a better world for our kids and my grandkids. It's so difficult. Yet in the cartel, Jake, it was so easy for me to recruit people telling them the following. You're going to live an amazing life, but the end of that road is going to have one or two endings. You're going to spend the rest of your life in jail or you're going to die. You want to come out or not? And boy, I'll tell you what. We recruited thousands. Man, the devil really knows how to help people out, you know. Whereas, you know, you're trying to do good. And, uh, you know, even when we were in the cartel, man, we did so much to help so many people. If I knew you had enough for proper cost, we'd give you money. You know, people say, oh, it's bad money. Listen, it's all green. And you take it from ungodly hands to godly hands. And, it, and that's all that matters. And, and we did, man. We, 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 we built hospitals. We built... All kinds of things. I, I built, uh, about seven years ago, we built the only Catholic chapel inside any United States prison at Angola, Louisiana, where men are never going to go home. You know, I'm fighting in, 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 in what I say where I speak against prison reform. I'm fighting against uh, and this criminal justice system. I'm fighting for when they talk about this Black Lives Matter movement, I'm like, look, first and foremost, it does not matter. I don't care how many... If you burn the entire United States, you're not going to make people that don't like you like you. That's the bottom line. It's been happening since humanity. But what, what, what does it even matter? Let's say we convince every white person in the world to like every person of color. What difference is it going to make if in the next 10 years, 8 out of 10 African-American men and Latinos are going to be in jail? So why don't we rebuild these communities? Instead of protesting, you know, I love the sentiment of the Black Lives Matter movement, I hate the organization. They stand for things I don't stand for. And to me, like I said before, all lives matter to me, every life. But I've been saying this since I used to do gang revivals. 
1998, I went in Chicago. As a matter of fact, I just got an email today. You know, I'll tell you what, I'll read this to you because, you know, this is really, really powerful. And this is, this is a guy, literally, literally, with no help from anybody, just out there in Chicago. And uh, his name is James Martin, John Martin, and he writes to me. He says to me, uh, you spoke in Aurora, Illinois, at my church and ministry I ran called God's Gym. Aurora, Chicago, just anyone from Northern Chicago, it's all gang area, okay? In the early 2000s, we bought cases of your book, and tapes to use in our ministry. Your story has changed so many lives in our community that you will never, ever imagine the impact you had. I'd like to talk to you about a project I'm working on regarding the church now. I've been to those communities, right? And uh, we had to choose. We had, there was a big, big war between the Latin Kings and, and the Bloods. And, uh, and we had to choose so I could come and do this revival. And I had gang members from both sides attend at different, different times. They didn't come at the to the same event. But what I saw was how horrible, man, that Latinos were killing Latinos and blacks are killing blacks. Every child born in that community has no chance in life. And we need to revive those communities. So we need to raise awareness of our athletes and our, and our you know, entertainers. There's a lot of money in the communities of color. The richest athlete in the world is a Brazilian, Ronaldo, you know? And, and the richest basketball players are all African-American. We have a lot of money. But you know what happens, Jake? When we make it, we leave, we move to the community that we have been bashing all along, and then we don't look back. I mean, there's some. I'm talking generally. So we want to we want to stop this what people call racism or prejudice or level the field. We need to start at the bottom, bringing better schools, better housing, helping those poor women, you know, to get off welfare and be able to earn a decent living. Pay those kids to go to school. We want to give a check to everybody. Well, pay those kids that cannot afford to go to school because they have to work. Pay them to go to school and get a vocational trade so they can earn. Nobody is born wanting to be a criminal. Nobody is born wanting to sell crack or sell amphetamine or opioids. None of that. Times, the place, society. You know, and, and it kills me because those the, our prisons are full of nobodies, man. Nobody. Kids that literally should be rehabilitated. But what are they doing? They're warehousing it. The prison system has become a big warehouse. And then they say, oh, we want to make your community safer. Bullshit. When you lock up a man, you lock up their family, his wife goes on welfare, his child now, 8 out of 10, has 80% chance of going to jail himself. Uh, they, they live in very poor community that raise very poor taxes. So therefore, their schools suck. Let's fix it, man. We're the greatest country in the world. You know, stop uh, all these senseless wars and minding other people's business that is none of our business. Leave them people alone, man. They've been fighting since the time of Jesus. Let them continue fighting among themselves and take that money that we spend in all these armaments to rebuild our nation and our community. If we stop, buy, stop buying tanks and planes and all that, let's go ahead. Let's force Big Pharma, the biggest drug dealer in the world. Drugs don't kill people. People kill themselves, right? But if you are manufacturing drugs that kill people, that people can kill themselves with, then you have a moral responsibility to do something to help. So what they do now, now they create a pill that you can buy so you don't overdose. So if you don't overdose, then you can buy more opioids. It's crazy. Why are we not screaming about this? Why, why were the people of color did not scream in 86 when the laws were changed to warehouse men of color? When I was in prison, 79, between African-Americans and Hispanics, we were maybe 26% of the prison population. The rest was white. Today, Hispanics and African-Americans combined are probably over 85% of the prison population. And that's only been, you know, 30, 40 years. There's a lot that we can do if we want to do it, you know? It, it means that if we put our intention on it, because when you look at the, the way things, you know, the way things are is, you know, the people in power that say they want to change things, they don't really want to, they don't really want it to change. They want it to stay the same. There should be so much more going on with, the, you know, the programs in prison to be able to, to help out. Right. And during these, during these crises, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, when, when nine 11 happened, uh, they made Muslims the enemy, you know, it seems like people join up when they have a common enemy and it's not, but it never solves anything. And during these crises, during these crises, that's when the people in power make the most money 
because nobody is checking on checking on things. So if you start a war um, or if you have a you know COVID-19 outbreak, um, when those funds and all the money and all the power starts shifting, nobody can, you know, nobody knows because it's a, it's, it's a mass. So I call, you know, not saying it is manufactured crisis. I know it is a big deal, but a lot of these wars and these unnecessary things are just a way to make sure that the power, the powerful stay in power. Of course. That's what it is. And the sad part about it is that we elect those politicians. Not a single one has ever gotten to Washington and said, I'm here. I am your congressman. I am your senator. I am. Your, we put them in there. So why are we putting these people in there and keeping them there for 30, 40 years to do crap? Why? I was, uh, there's a, a race going on in Palm Beach, um, West Palm Beach for the new, the new sheriff. And the, the, the sheriff who is been, you know, been there the whole time um, was the same guy who let Epstein out, you know, out on jail duty or whatever. We could go to his home. Same, same dude. And nobody's really investigating it. So, you know, I had contacted the guy that's running against him for sheriff and said, Hey, I can, I can help you. I can help you win. And, you know, and they weren't, not that they weren't receptive, but they were just like, Oh, you know, we'll, we'll think about it. And then I started looking into everything that they're doing. They're not really even doing anything to win. They're just there as a placeholder. You look at, you know, everything that they put out and it's like, they're not actually even trying to win because it's, it's a setup process for, for the other guy to keep winning, even though there's so much, you know, so much wrong that's been done. And then you even look at in California right now, Nancy Pelosi telling everybody you can't go get your hair, you know, your haircut and, you know, shutting down, shutting out businesses. But then you see a, a video of her in there without even wearing a mask, um, getting her haircut. And then trying to even blame the small business saying that she was, that she was set up. It's just, it's, it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, look, honestly, Jake is disgusting on both sides, man. It's horrific. Look what's happening right now in Georgia. Think about what's happening in Georgia. I don't know if you heard about this. If it's true and, and, and 99% shows that it's true, this centers for profit. Who do you think is housing all these immigrants that we separate at the border? Number one, why are we separating the mother from the kids? Because the law said we can only keep the kid X amount of time, right? So we separate them and then send them back or do whatever. But the mother we can keep forever. They're doing hysterectomies, man, on those women. Why are we not at arms? But why? Because the poor Indian indigenous women that can't defend themselves. And it was a nurse, a nurse that broke and said, this is inhumane. These women are going in there saying they have a, a menstrual irregularity, and they're doing just outright hysterectomy. Now, I'm asking my pro-life brother, why are we not at arm? That's worse than abortion, man. That's genocide. You're preventing that woman because in your eyes, in your eyes, she means nothing from ever having a child. In reality, you want her to have, a, you want her to have a, uh, <clears throat> you know, not to be able to have a children. But we're not, right? And, and people see this. And, and our youth see it. Why? Because they have more access to information than I ever had at the same age. And I believe this generation coming up, people might think that they're this or that, but you know what? If a kid is out of touch with reality, it's not the kid's fault. It's a freaking parent, you know? That's the bottom line because none of my kids are out of touch with reality. They're all decent. They're all people of integrity. They're all honorable. I have a daughter who's a lawyer, master's degree, my son, Passed the CPA the first shot. I mean, all my kids very successful. And everybody, and it's funny because I get people all the time saying, oh my God, such and such is such a decent uh, young man. Wow, we were just so amazed. And I'm like, really? You're amazed that someone is what they're supposed to be? Respectful and decent? My son comes up to me and said, hey dad, what would you have done to me when I was 12 years old if I started calling people nickname? I said, I would bust your mouth. If you don't have respect for others, now, you're not going to have respect for others later. It's like I, I, I've been to so many times. Like I've been in, uh, I go to Disney, I get in, in those buses that move around. How many times I get up for elderly people because young people were not, young, no, I'm middle aged and 40s and 50 won't get up for an older person in their 80s. I'm 64, man. I still call, yes, sir, no, sir. And all my kids say, yes, sir, and no, sir. So, you know, don't blame the youth, blame the parents, you know. I said, there's no bad kids. There's out of control parents. That's the bottom line. And that's, and that's what we see 
today on both sides of the aisle. It is horrific. It is horrific. And, and the division in America has gotten worse and worse. For the first time in my life, I'm talking to a friend of mine in Mexico. I have a house in Cozumel. And, uh, and this person wearing a MAGA hat comes out to me and says, speak English, boy. You're not in Mexico. The president is going to make sure that you go back to Mexico and don't jump the border again. I said, with all due respect, sir, I am not Mexican. I would have been proud to be Mexican. I am a Cuban. But I need to let you know something. For 200 years before you immigrants showed up in this land, we spoke Spanish in America. 200 years before you all came and spoke the first English word here. So know your place. And I mean, my God, I've been here 54 years, Jake. I never had anybody said that to me before. I can't have a conversation anymore with anybody that my opinion is towards one party or the other. If that person, even though we've known each other forever, is of the opposite party. Because we can't have dialogue anymore. Dialogue doesn't exist. You know, it's like I, 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 I did a post today. We wake up every day, we're inundated with this hatred and this ugliness, and people share it. I had a friend of mine share something very, very horrific. I, I've had him both ways. I've had him against Trump, and I've had it against Biden, and I've called them both out. I said, you know what? I know you, you guys are individuals. I said, you're a middle guy. I said, you're better than this, man. Talk about how you dis disagree with a person's platform. That's okay. Talk how you think that your candidate is going to make it better. That's perfectly okay. But you guys are Christians? I said, do you remember that old hymn, we will know, they will know we are Christians by our love? I said, you freaking guys have no love, man. It's so sickening that I got off Facebook for a long time. Because, I mean, I'm still Cuban and I'm hot-tempered and, you know, and I should just shut up and let everybody be miserable. There is, there was a study, 60% of um, all Twitter accounts are bots, 60%. Um, and so you think about how many online profiles are fake and we can't, you know, when they're, when they're made, they're made in ways that we really don't know, um, whether that's a real person, uh, you know, posting something or whether that's a, uh, is a bot 2020 was a, in, in my mind, and I'm going to keep, you know, and I'll keep pressing on this as you know, for, for my fight is that I feel like 2020 was a test of where humanity's at, because you look at the internet connects everybody in the entire world. How do you how do you react? Because they save every single thing that, that people do online, um, every every fake news that people post, every you know time that you know people uh, comment something. They know what triggers you and what doesn't. And it was for me, it's a it was a big control test. And we made decisions as not only government you know government leaders um, and people. We made decisions based off of what sixty percent of you know, bots, bots pushed because in our minds, uh, perception is reality. And those, in those accounts exactly. are, are just as real as real people to us. Um, so it's, it's, it's gonna, it, what, with what you're doing is I, I love, and I want to be able to figure out how I can support, um, and be a part of, you know, in any way, because those are the things that have to be, um, done. You know, you look, there's so many people that want to save animals. Hey, I want to save animals too. Um, you know, I don't, there's you know a lot of things, but really what it comes down to is let's, let's take care of the, what needs to be first. And, um, I'm excited to see where, where you're going. I appreciate that, my brother. Yeah. You know, we got to bring stability back because it's not about us. I mean, sooner or later we're going to die, you know, and, and it's so sad because like I, I tell my children, no matter who you like as a presidential candidate, four years or eight years, it will change again and it will change again. And it will change again. And one party is going to be in power one term. The other one is going to be in power the other. That has been happening since 50 freaking years. You've never seen a party stay in power more than eight years. It happens. Same thing with so, drug lords. Exactly. And, and it does. And I said, but the thing about it is how you behave as, a, as an adult is how our kids are going to behave. And, and we're not ugly, man. You know, Tocqueville said that he came to America looking to see the greatness of America. He said, you know, I went to his, his infrastructure and it, and it wasn't there. He said, you know, I, I, I went to his building, his factories. It wasn't there. He says, I visited on and on. He says, but then I went to a church and I saw it there. America is good. It's great because Americans are good. 
We are good people, man. Even those that hate each other horrifically, even on and on. We are as, as naturally wise. We are nature under God, and uh, and we are good people. But we can't continue to let the media, number one, the biggest proponent, uh, teach us or force us or lead us to become uncivilized. Let's disagree. Disagreement, dialogue is what makes us better. You show me your points of view and me showing you my points of view, we both learn from each other, right? My godfather said, listen, you can learn from every human being in the world. All you got to do is keep your mouth shut for a while because you can learn from anybody. But, you know, when I express my opinion, you know, and, and, and I'll close with that last story. I don't know if you've seen in, uh, in LinkedIn, uh, James Altucher, uh, wrote this article about New York is dead, right? And uh, I, I did a, a YouTube about it, and he broke it down, you know, really methodically. I mean, very, very analytical. Well, Seinfeld didn't like it. And his rebuttal wasn't that, no, that's not going to happen. No, no, his rebuttal is insulting the hell out of the guy. I mean, with horrific language. Why don't you, the guy gave you facts. If he tell you that X amount of buildings are empty and not going to be leased, rebut it. If he's telling you that, that the internet is changing the way people will come back, rebut it. If he's telling you that the theaters will not open up at 25% capacity because at 75% they go broke, <laughs> rebut that. But no, you schmuck, you this, you, I mean, horrible. So I'm like, really? And, and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of views it's gotten. Because is that the world we're in? If it bleeds, it reads? I guess so. But, you know, I'm just old school, man. Like, the DEA agent that arrested me when I came to the United States from Panama, he said, look, I just want to tell you, like you, you're a dinosaur. They don't make you like you anymore. He says, I've been an agent for 30 years. No one, no one. I would have bet my money that everybody breaks. I'm like, well, because God made me different. So, you know, but we just got to go through life and be, be who you are, man. You're a young man. You got a whole future ahead of you. You know, let people know, know you for, you know, for what you do to make this world better, not for what you stand against. We, we, we're known for all. We, we hate the Democrat. We hate the Republican. We hate pro-abortion. We hate pro-life. We hate pro-choice. I mean, it's all about hate, man. It's like, dude, get hold of that. That ain't going to make nobody's life better. That ain't gonna change nobody's life. We can make this world better. One person and Jesus, to me, is a majority. The greatest, greatest movements in history have been done by one person. Not a lot of people. One person. God doesn't need our ability. He just needs our availability. And, uh, and that's true. God can do, he can make for unbelievable things out of very horrific things. This was one of my favorite inter interviews and I appreciate you coming on. I know, uh, you know, Matt had connected us. Amen, brother.